Thanks for tuning into the Texas Family Law Podcast, where we provide you tips and insight to help you navigate divorce and child custody situations. This is Brian Walters. And I'm Jake Gilbreth. We are the managing partners at Walters Gilbreth PLLC with offices in Houston, Austin, and Dallas, and we're board certified in family law by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization. Your hosts are broadcasting from the Lone Star State of Texas, where both have earned a reputation as fierce and effective advocates, both inside and outside the courtroom. Hi there, it's Billy Tarasio from the Modern Divorce Podcast, and today we are co-hosting and co-interviewing with my friend, fellow attorney, Texas family law attorney, Brian Walters. Brian, welcome to the show. Do you want to introduce your podcast? Yeah, thanks. We're uh, with the Texas Family Law Podcast. Uh, My partner, Jay Gilbreth, and I uh, are family and divorce lawyers based in um, Dallas, Houston, and Austin, and I'm happy to, to talk about this with you. Fantastic. This is going to be a great topic today. We're going to talk about what happens when families are divided and some are in Arizona and some are in Texas and just how different the laws are and what that can mean for your case. So Brian, why don't you describe what might typically happen in that scenario? Yeah, let's pick a hypothetical with a married couple. They're married, say, 15 years. They've got a 10 and a five-year-old. They've been in Phoenix for most of their life. And the the husband gets a job in Dallas, and they decide he's going to kind of work remote for a couple of years rather than uprooting the family and then, then come back, maybe American Airlines or something like that. And so let's assume the husband has been out there for a year and a half out of that time period where mom and the kids have stayed in Phoenix. And things go south for whatever reason. And suddenly they're in our respective offices. I'm talking to the husband and you're talking to the wife. So yeah, in our world, this is increasingly, this kind of thing is increasingly common. We get these kind of situations all the time. And it's some big differences between our states, I think we'll discover and some things that aren't so different. I love it. So this couple has had a big fight this weekend. The first question I've got for you is, does it matter if the husband's talking to you first or if the wife's talking to me first, does it matter if somebody's filed? I think the talking part is just, it doesn't matter. You can, you know, it's it's good to be informed and I have plenty of people, I'm sure you do too, that come in and talk and never hear from them again or you don't hear from them for five years or something because they they had a fight, like you said, and then they kind of decide they were, oh, okay, I'll, I'll make it work. But it does matter where you file and who files first can make a big difference. Um, I, and I think we... This is where we kind of divide the world into the child part of the case and then the the divorce or property part because they're very different rules for those two things. So do you want to talk about the most important part, the, the kids stuff first? Yeah, well, the kids stuff is clear. So the interesting thing about divorce is that Arizona has jurisdiction over divorce as long as someone's lived here for 90 days. And even if somebody hasn't lived here 90 days, if they've been here for any amount of time, we can file for a legal separation and then convert it to a divorce. And that would give our state jurisdiction over the divorce. Now, what about you? What are the residency requirements to file? Good question. It's six months and we do not have legal separation. I think Texas is the only state that does not, from what I understand. And so it's all or nothing. You either file for a divorce or, or not, but it is a strict six-month rule. And so in that particular case, if 
for whatever reason, if somebody, if they both moved from New York and one moved to Dallas and one moved to Arizona, it sounds like much more quickly the Arizona resident could get into court if they needed to as, as it relates to the divorce. Yes. And so in Arizona, we could absolutely file for divorce. We could also file, we would also have jurisdiction over the children because this is where the UCCJEA comes into play. This is the statute that's been adopted by all 50 states that determines that only one state can really properly have jurisdiction. So while Texas and Arizona might both have jurisdiction over the divorce, only one can have jurisdiction over the kids. Right. Which is really interesting because you can have two cases going on at the same time and one in the divorce in Texas, let's say, and the and the kids stuff in um, in Arizona. It's even more confusing when you file for divorce in Texas under this scenario, you still have to list your kids as part of it. But then you need to kind of basically say, well, the case doesn't really belong here, but it belongs the kid part of the case belongs over in uh in Arizona. Now, most lawyers don't even think about why it might be a good idea to divide your case. It might be in your best interest to have the property piece heard in a different state, even if it means having two cases. And that's why I think this discussion is so interesting. I agree with you. And um, there's even a question, I think, about whether which state would determine child support child part of the case because this UCCJEA is as it relates to child custody jurisdiction, not necessarily there's a different statute for, for child support. Let's put that aside. I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but I agree with you. There there can be enormous differences. Again, our state, Texas, has got some really unusual rules and as it relates to the other states. And they're normal for us. <laughs> we don't even think about them. But when I start talking to lawyers out of state, they look, they look at me like I'm from a different planet, which I guess some people might t- consider Texas to be a different planet. But yeah, there are real differences. And, and maybe we could talk about that if maybe the scenario is the dad is working and the mom is a stay-at-home mom. They, you know, He earns a six-figure income. Uh, she used to be a nurse, but then stopped working to raised the kids, you know, 10 years ago, and they've acquired, let's say, you know, two or $3 million worth of assets. They've got a nice house in Phoenix or Scottsdale or something, and they've got a, he's got a retirement. And so that's the scenario where I suspect we're going to find there's some real big differences. There are probably a lot of cases where if the parties are both working and they make about the same income and they don't really have assets, it's probably not a big deal, but they're, but I think the one I've laid out is going to going to be significant. So first of all, are you guys a community property state there in Arizona? We are. Okay. So are we. So that at least we're on the same basic page there. Do you want to explain a little bit what that means? Sure. So community property is this concept of the community is created as its own entity, sort of how you think of companies having their own status. The community has its own status. And so any actions that either the husband or the wife takes on behalf of the community can bind the community. Basically what that means is that all the debts will be divided or both of you are responsible for all the debts and both of you are responsible for all of the money, no matter who actually did what to contribute. Right. So you can't, if you're the high wage earner and you're getting divorced, you can't say, give me all that money back because I'm the one who worked and you didn't work. It's all going to be shared in some manner, correct? Yeah, there's a pot and it's going to get divided. So what does Texas do that's wonky? Well, let me ask you a couple things. So first of all, because I know this from California, California divides that community property as I understand it by statute, right down the middle. You know, it's always complicated, but it basically it's it would be divided 50-50, where Texas can and frequently does divide it 55-45 or 60-40, even, even 70-30, depending on the, the situation. It's a lot that goes into that too. But so it's not a straight up even division of that community. Where, where do you guys stand on that? So 
our statute says that all community property will be equitably divided. This The case law goes on to define further that equitably is equal unless there's a good reason for equal not to be equitable. So for instance, let's say this couple had a lot of debt. It's unlikely, but let's say they did. I might argue that an equitable division would give my client more of the community property because she has less available income to pay half of the debt. You could make the same arguments here. We also have some um, kind of good and bad behavior arguments. Mm. Um, And so we do get into things like who's cruel treatment, family violence, adultery. Those are the kind of things that could affect the division of property. And so we still have some of that here. Well, that, so that is that is different. <laughs> it, it makes some for some interesting cases, I can assure you. So there's that. And I think probably the other significant aspect of this is alimony, which does not exist in Texas, period. We a few years ago had a have a statute called spousal maintenance that's really limited, probably less than 1% of all cases. I've only litigated two cases in my entire career where it was awarded and even then for a very short period of time. It's just not a thing. And that is, I suspect, a real big difference between our two states, especially when you have the kind of extreme income disparity that, that we've talked about in this scenario. Absolutely. Like that's mind blowing. There's no spousal maintenance. There's no alimony. So we call alimony spousal maintenance here, but it's what you think of as alimony. Okay. So I can understand how if there's no alimony and this case is in Texas, we're going to ask for a lot more than half of the community property because my client hasn't worked in 10 years. Right. And that's a reason the court could make, and in a huge estate, if you had a $10 million estate and and the wife got 60-40 on a 20% swing, so that's $2 million, you know, maybe those those cases would come out to be pretty similar. I had one like that about 10 years ago. There was just enough there that it was California, Texas, and it just didn't really matter because California had to divide it 50-50 and Texas was going to give her a big chunk of extra and it was probably about a wash. But in this scenario, but most people don't have $10 million. And so it's a big difference. And um, yeah, I, I think that in that particular case, I think you would probably advise your client to the wife, and in this case, to probably, hey, you really should consider filing in Arizona because if this case ends up in Texas, you're not going to get anything or not any alimony, at least on any spousal maintenance or highly unlikely to get it. And that could be a real big number. Give us a sense on the scenario that we we talked about. Let's say a $250,000 a year for the husband, nothing for the wife, 15-year marriage. Is there kind of a rough estimate of what that would be? So Arizona definitely is following the trend towards Texas. I wouldn't say that we're looking at eliminating spousal maintenance, but in general, awards are getting smaller and shorter, especially on something like a 15-year marriage where my client is a nurse and has worked and probably will be able to support herself in a few short years. I would imagine that she would probably get anywhere between, I'm going to go with a bigger range, maybe between two and six years of spousal maintenance. And maybe if it was six, it would probably be a descending amount. So she might get a good amount. And by a good amount, I mean if she was going to go in front of a judge, maybe 3000 to 4500 a month for the next several years to give her time to become self-sufficient, get herself, you know, the license that she needed to work again as a nurse and and make that happen. 
Another real opportunity here for her would be to ask for a large upward deviation of child support because that is less discretionary in Arizona than spousal maintenance. There's a formula from the Steve Nash case, and it's very rarely pled correctly or litigated correctly by attorneys, but it's not really discretionary. If you can prove how much money was spent on the kids during the marriage, then you can get that amount of child support. Interesting. Um, and that's the basketball player, I'm assuming, or that, that's Steve Nash. Okay. Yes, that one. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, and that's and that's interesting because we really divide, we don't really, in fact, by statute, we don't consider child support as anything to do with the property division. And and this is another example of, and I mentioned it briefly, that there might be a difference about where the child support was calculated. But Texas is capped. And essentially, whether you're Steve Nash or um, Luka Doncic or uh, whatever whatever other basketball player you want to mention, they're going to pay for one, if they have one kid, they're going to pay about $1,800 a month in child support, period, even if they're a billionaire. So and now there's a very difficult way to, to get above that, basically, if you have a disabled child only, and that's defined very strictly. So yeah, and it doesn't matter what you spend on the kids. It really doesn't. Even private schools, and you know that that's where they've been going. Well, maybe they're not going to private school anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's like I said, it's a considerable difference. Uh, whatever the reason was, that's those are the way the laws are. So how does it work when you've got someone who's unable to support themselves? Or let's say, you know, I've got a case right now that is not a 15-year marriage. It's a 30-year marriage, 35-year marriage. Wife worked for two years, you know, back in 1980. He makes a good amount of money and she's probably going to get a good amount of maintenance. So in that case, what would happen realistically to the wife? I mean, that's a case where maybe the statute would kick in for her. Maybe. And but even then it will be short and it will not be that long. I mean, we're talking, you know, a couple thousand bucks a month for maybe 18 months or something like that. If but again, I make the laws. I think the philosophy is you're not married anymore. Go on with your life and whether you know and figure it out. It's essentially what it is. And you know, again, if there's a substantial community estate, the court can do something to try to rectify that a little bit. But it's that's the view is you're not married and you don't have a claim on each other's income going forward for the most part, either direction other than child support. And that's related to a child, not not to the marriage. Is that making a difference in the way people behave while they're married? Are people less likely to make the decision that one party should stay home, you know, and sacrifice a career on behalf of children? I don't know if there's an empirical evidence of that. I mean, the marriage rates in Texas are are I think high, you know, at or above the the national average. You know, I think it's staying home with the kids is more of an economic decision than that, than it is anything. And of course, you know how this is. Nobody gets married thinking they're going to get divorced, and divorce is generally not a the decision to get divorced is generally not an economic decision of you know I'm going to be twenty percent better off financially if I get divorced. It's usually mostly mostly an emotional component of it, although when you know, when it comes time to divide things, all you, you know, that's what you divide is money. So, you know, it is a risky situation, I think, for some stay-at-home moms to take that. I think also the statistics are that most people remarry within five years of being divorced. That's just the statute or the statistics, I think, in every state. And maybe that's the way some people deal with it as well. You know, I'll, I'll make it for a few years. I'll find somebody better than my husband and get on with it. But it certainly can can make that transition difficult. And um, I, I would definitely advise a client about those differences in the scenario that we gave. 
in the scenario that we gave, I think you said there was two to $3 million. Let's say there's $3 million in net worth. If they were divorced in Texas, no alimony, how much of the property would my client get? I think in that scenario, assuming there was you know no outrageous behavior between the spouses, I think at least 55%, uh, maybe even 60%. So that's a 20% swing. You know, that's $1.8 million instead of 1.5. So, you know, it's a $300,000, depending on the type of the asset, probably tax-free. You know, and I guess if you did the math on that over Mm -hmm. five years of alimony, that's Mm -hmm. 60 months divided by 300,000 is 5,000 a month. And so maybe you're getting to the same similar numbers, but again, that's because they have a substantial net worth. And if Mm -hmm. you don't, it's a very, very, if, if you're some of those folks who kind of spend the money as it comes in and you mm-hmm. come out of a 15 year marriage with little or no assets, it's mm-hmm. going to be a stark difference. Now, I will say that there's a bit of a tweak, which is since we don't have spouse, and this may explain why we don't have alimony, we, since we don't have legal separation, all that time period where you're going from the time you file till you get divorced, which could be a year or 18 months in a contested case, you're still gathering the community money together and you have an obligation to support each other. So in a, in a scenario where a case drags out 18 months, in that case, the spouse who's not working would have 18 months, basically of really half of the of the income, not not some smaller percentage of it. And that is a time period where they would have a chance to realize that and to start making adjustments to to go forward. But it's definitely a lifestyle change. Much It sounds much more dramatic than what they would face in Arizona. I don't know that my client would get $300,000 of spousal maintenance in Arizona. Right. So it's it's an interesting thing to to really think about and to analyze. And I think it should be analyzed on a case-by-case basis. And I think if you do have the option of filing in one state or another, it's probably a good idea to talk to both me and Brian and maybe right. even have Brian and I talk to each other to figure out what is the best thing for this client to do. Can I ask another question? Yes, of course. So what if your client is having an affair with with the flight attendant. How does that affect our property division? So in Texas, that that would probably weigh against him if that was sort of the cause of the of the breakup of the marriage. And so you know, you combine that with the disparity in earning capacity. Now you might be looking at sixty five percent or something along those lines toward the wife, and so that can have a significant effect on things. You know that used to be difficult to prove. Uh, not anymore. No. As long as I have access to someone's phone, I can tell you exactly what they've been doing and with who. So, and can you uh, get access to people's phones as part absolutely. of the course? Absolutely, we just subpoena it, and um, no questions, no problems. Computers, phones. DMs, you name it. It's all coming in because it's relevant. And is yeah, Texas they, a no-fault divorce state? So there is a no what's called insupportability, which is no fault. And that even where there's been adultery or a cruel treatment or something like that, almost all of them still have written down in the divorce document is insupportability. People will kind of pay a premium to not have that, you know, on a on a public document or for their kids to see. So it's that's 99% of them are granted on that basis, even though there's often been some stepping out of the marriage in the later stage of his, stages of it or something like that. So it's not really no fault. I mean, we care in Texas if you've been cruel, right. if you've been a jerk, if you've withheld money, if you've you know been mean to the kids. What counts? Is, is a, a recording screaming at your spouse? Is that going to be admissible and, and result in money? It might. And then... Um, 
type of things you need to think about those bad facts hanging out there. You probably need to settle your case and it's probably going to cost you. So I know a lot of other states, it sounds like Arizona is kind of the same way of move beyond, you know, it just didn't work out. Let's not get into the gory details, but we're all over the gory details all the time. We subpoena and take depositions of the girlfriends and boyfriends and ask them about all kinds of highly personal things that nobody wants to talk about. And uh, where did it happen? Wow, what position? I mean, it's all, it's sort of like the Jerry Springer show sometimes here. It's pretty interesting. The other interesting thing about our state, which is that juries are allowed to make these decisions about custody, about whether someone committed adultery or not. I've got a jury trial set in three weeks for asking a jury to value a an asset. We're going to have experts come in and talk about it, and then they're going to tell us what it's worth because they, they can't agree on what it's worth. And so we are the only state, as I understand, that does that, gives those rights to 12 of our citizens and instead of a judge sitting up somewhere to do it, which is quite the thing, especially in these COVID times, it's been particularly uh, particularly interesting to try those. How often are divorce cases heard by a jury? It's pretty rare because of the because of the cost. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it triples probably the trial cost, and you know, and it makes them twice as long. And there's just so much more. So it's way under one percent of all trials are that way. It's generally a case only where there's a lot of high stakes and people want to pay for it. And, and there's often an emotional component to it. So it's still pretty rare. We try a bunch of them for whatever reason, but it's uh, still pretty rare. I'm, I've got three scheduled for the next three months. We'll see how many of them actually happen, but that's what's on my docket. So the dockets are starting to come back to life now since this is uh, this is mid-March in 2021. So starting to we somewhat return to normal in our court system. That's fantastic. And to me, it sounds like kind of a blast. <laughs> well, it, it is. And if you're good at it, and my, and my law partner in particular is really, really good at, at juries. And, you know, it's, it's very intimidating for other lawyers. It's really difficult. And so if you're confident about it, it's really an advantage. It's like, all right, sure, we'll go try it to a jury. And the other side is thinking that's not such a great plan. And um, it's a great way to extract a better settlement if that's what happens. Because that's what happens in probably you guys are the same way. 99% of them are still going to settle. 98, 99% are going to settle without a full-blown trial at the end of things. It's just predictable and not worth the cost or the stress or the headache or the risk. Well, Brian, this has been a fantastic conversation, much more interesting than a former conversation I had about Florida and Arizona. Texas sounds like a fantastic place to practice law and a terrible place to get divorced. (laughs) Well, it depends on which side of the divorce you're on. It does. It does depend. In this case, you you may, you know, based on my side, I don't want her going there. But uh, yeah, yeah, must be great. So thank you so much for your time today. It's been it's been a lot of fun. Okay, you have a good day. You too. 